Batten and Brexit. Welcome to Batten and Brexit with the UKIP leader and UKIP MEP for London, Gerard Batten. Hello, Gerard. Hello, Ian. Uh, this series, of course, brought to you by the EFDD Group in the European Parliament. And as regular listeners will be aware, uh, the idea is that each episode, Gerard will talk about the big issues of EU policy that have either riled him or intrigued him, and on rare occasions even made him chuckle. And, of course, your comments along the way as well. And, uh, I mean, t- to say there's uh, a-, a bit of a buffet to tuck into on this episode... Uh, Gerard doesn't really uh, do justice to the big old list you've got there, including things like Strasbourg budgets, which normally would Uh make people want to sleep for about 40 years. (laughs) Well, um, yes, what I was going to kick off with was the last plenary session in Strasbourg, which if you're a regular listener to this, you'll realise that MEPs have to go to Strasbourg for four days in the month in order to vote on the endless torrent of directives and... Um, aspirational own initiative reports from MEPs who think we ought to have a law on this, that and the other uh, in order to justify their existence. And uh, we, as usual, had a very heavy workload. Actually, it was quite heavy uh, in this uh, session. Uh, and what do you do? Do you all sit there in that, well, big, that big parliament that we, yeah. we see? You just sit there for hours <laughs> on end no, what, going the way through it, policy. It's, it's very odd, actually, because on the Monday we don't kick off till 5 o'clock because it takes some people, you know, people are coming from the Arctic Circle in Sweden or they're coming from, you know, uh, in the far reaches of Eastern Europe. They're coming from Cyprus and Greece. So what happens is we kick off at 5 o'clock. They go through the order of business, what we're going to be doing for the, for the week, uh, various other bits and pieces, and then we do the... The v- actual voting is done normally between 12 o'clock and 1.30 on the Tuesday, the Wednesday and the Thursday. And the rest of the time is filled, for example, in the mornings and the afternoons, sometimes up to 11 o'clock at night with the debates that aren't really debates because everybody does the same thing. They, they are doing their bit for YouTube because if you've got 60 seconds, which is the normal time that you get to make a speech, or if you're lucky, 90 seconds, or if you're really lucky, two minutes then what you're really doing is making a speech uh, which has to be tailored, otherwise you, you might find your microphone, microphone is cut off before you get to your punchline. So people are making speeches in order for them to for that to go on YouTube so their constituents can see what they're saying about any particular issue. There's no real debate. Nobody listens to each other that much. Uh, so it can be quite funny. So it doesn't change anything? Uh, no, because what happens is that... if a, let's, let's take a piece of legislation. A directive comes from the European Commission. The European Commission is the only body that can initiate legislation. So they will come up with a directive or a regulation. That will then go through the relevant committee. The committee can then add amendments. And then after they've had their time with it, it comes, finally it comes to the Parliament and we vote on what the, ever they've come up with in terms of the original directive plus the amendments. Uh, and then we vote on the whole lot. At the end of that process, whatever's come out at the end goes back to the Commission, and then they can either accept it or they can reject it completely. If, if the Parliament has put so many amendments in that it, they don't like the outcome, they can actually reject it and not implement it. So we are there to amend it, but we cannot enforce something. So if, they can reject it and just carry through whatever they want to carry uh, through? No, that, 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 what happens now is uh, the Parliament has a bit more power than it used to have. Uh, that, that kills it, if you like. If they can't accept what the Parliament has come up with, that kills it, but only for the time being, because what they do is, is wait a year or two, and then they come back with the same thing again, and we've had it done 
on different occasions where the same legislation comes back again. And very famously, I was once there. It was something called the Ports Directive. It was in my first term there where they wanted to control what goes on in the European Union's ports. It was completely rejected by the Parliament because we had dock workers coming, turning up and threatening to burn the Parliament down. They weren't happy with it. So it was completely rejected by the Parliament and the Commissioner came to the Parliament and said, well, very sorry you've rejected this. We'll have to come back in the future to a more compliant Parliament. Well, they did some years later. I think it was the end of the second term, if I remember correctly, and a very similar piece of legislation was voted through anyway, obviously amended by the Parliament. Uh, one important thing that people ought to realise is that we, the Parliament has no power to repeal legislation. So if we think something isn't working is particularly bad, like if they were to take the view that the European arrest warrant is very bad, which I do, we have no power to repeal it. That would take a new directive from the Commission actually laying out how it would be amended. So the Commission repealed. would have to want to amend it? It would have to initiate it. And if it, the Commission don't want to amend it, it will never it get won't. amended? No, the best that an, an MEP could do would be to write an own initiative report, and then they'd have the backing of their committee to actually get that through, and then that would be voted on, but that has no legislative power. Okay. So it's only a suggestion to the Commission. So we have swapped over the years a democratic system for an undemocratic system. But, of course, it's not all dull paperwork and diktats going on down there. Once in a while, you get a bit of an EU VIP picture. Well, yes, uh, we get presidents of countries, etc. And on the last occasion, in, uh, in April, we had President Macron from France turn up. And uh, he, he's quite tiny in actual fact. I was quite surprised how short he is. Nothing against short people. I'm, I'm not shortest. I'm not that tall myself, yeah. but he's shorter than me. Is there a directive on that? No. <laughs> no, but uh, he stood up. But he didn't say anything really new or interesting. It was very much the UK, you know, the uh, EU's fantastic. It's great. We all realise there's problems, but we have to have more EU. So there was nothing It's kind really... of funny how there's a sort of a hero worship of this guy. I mean, he's been in politics at that level for about ten minutes. Um, he suddenly was sort of whisked into the higher echelons. Of, he's been in the, in, in the back room, as it were, for... For a while, of course, but uh, suddenly some people felt that he was you know, thrust into the spotlight to stop other parties gaining traction. Well, um, and out of nowhere, he's become this kind of Merkel-esque hero of France. Well, this is it, you see, because, yes, you're quite right. Uh, now, those of us who've been in politics in the front line for a long time know how difficult it is to find the money to run in any kind of election. You know, it's always a struggle. Um, and suddenly he appeared from nowhere. He was one of the he, uh, France's bureaucrats. You know, he's one of these people that have been through the system. They call them enarchs, who've been to the right universities and have all the right qualifications. And when they realised that there might be a danger of somebody like Madame Le Pen winning, he was suddenly wheeled out uh, with a presidential campaign that must have cost millions of euros. And he didn't raise that money. That money was raised for him. And I believe it was one of the big banks... Uh, that actually raised that money for him and spent that money. And, of course, now he's in power and some of the things he wants to do, which may indeed may need doing, which is to reform some of France's more archaic um, labour laws, etc. But he was wheeled out and paid for to become president of France. 
and people voted for him, so there you are. But the elections do come down to how much money you can spend in many countries. Did you have a photograph taken with him? No, I didn't. Uh, one of my <laughs> colleagues did, but I'm not, I'm not a... You know, I don't really like collecting photographs of myself thing. anyway, so I don't do selfies. Uh, but no, no, it's always interesting to hear these people. And he did stay... He did drone on for ages, actually, and when we wanted to come in and actually vote... Uh, he went on way over his time, yeah. uh, and we were all sitting there waiting to vote because we want to get in uh, and do the hour and a half and, and get out. And we did have a very, very heavy workload on the Tuesday, which was voting on the um, discharges of the budget. And we had endless votes, which were done at terrific speed, and basically they were just agreeing uh, the European Union spend on all kinds of areas. You just press a button and say uh, yes, yeah, yes, most, yes, or uh, no, no, no. Quite a lot of them were actually just two votes, uh, a yes or a no, or a yes or a no, on, on each particular uh, item. And there were millions and millions of euros agreed. I don't think anything failed to pass, as I recall, on the budget. Some of them were a bit longer than others, but most of them were just a simple vote, yes or no. And one of the things that went through was a report on something called an EU Global Compact on Immigration, which I did, actually, I got a very, very um, generous two minutes to speak on that. And the United Nations have proposed this. It doesn't come from the EU, but the EU was voting on whether we, we want to go for it or not, and it was voted in the affirmative. Uh, and this is some kind of agreement between nations on how they are going to address this international migration problem. And basically, I stood up, I read the thing through, I stood up and made a speech, and I said, what this really is, is a charter for illegal immigration. In the European Parliament, you constantly hear people stand up and say, we need more legal avenues for migration. And what they're basically saying is, what's illegal now, let's make it legal so that it's no longer a problem. Remember? Sort of Boris Johnson yeah, amnesty. Yeah, that's absolutely territory. right. Yeah. Uh, and the great danger of this thing is that although this is supposed to be uh, non-binding and it's supposed to be a, a, of a kind of a non-consensual uh, nature, if it is uh, adopted by enough countries, uh, then it becomes what's known as international customary law. So it, be it becomes a in the body of law in a kind of an unofficial but, if it, but it's complied with way. And basically what this wants to do is to make it easier for people to come uh, so it's basically going to be a green light for people to to continue to come across the Mediterranean. So what would be their their reasoning behind well, that? Would they argue that it's humanitarian? Would yes. they say that it's economic? What's well, it's, it's based on the fallacy that Europe actually needs lots more immigration. Uh, now, some countries in Europe have declining populations, some don't. But if you have a declining population, the way to solve that problem, as they're trying to do in Hungary, is to make it easier for your existing population to actually have families because we all know the cost of living and the cost of bringing up families in many countries in the West is very high uh, and probably more people would get married at younger and have children if they thought they could actually support them and buy a house to, to live in, etc. Hungarians are trying to address this problem with some legislation. But the other country, or the European Union solution to this is to, well, don't worry about your existing people. Let's just bring in lots of poor people who will work for peanuts uh, from, from Africa, the Middle East, etc. And let's have an endless supply uh, of cheap labour and immigration. Um, and, of course, that what it is really, in my view, it's, it's really no longer about immigration. It's about, and I said in my speech, invasion and settlement. And it's a massive experiment, well it's not really an experiment, it's a massive exercise in social engineering for ideological reasons. 
they want to create a kind of borderless world where everybody goes across borders and everybody lives everywhere else and and it's all going to be wonderful and uh, you know we're going to have this great multicultural society on a global level which we all know from personal experience doesn't work but they're insistent it's a kind of left-wing um, ideological project which is being propagated by the UN and by most Western governments now. Let's talk about the Brexit latest, uh, particularly the House of Lords. Well, your, yes, fa- your <coughs> favourite place. They're dying, trying to do everything they can to thwart Brexit and to make sure that it doesn't really happen. They're putting in umpteen amendments to the Brexit bill, the withdrawal bill. This is something that our listeners will know I've been warning about for years, which is that we could end up with a withdrawal agreement where we don't really leave at all. It's so much like being in that you might as well have not bothered. That's what the House of Lords would like. Not just House of Lords, I have to say. There's a majority in the Commons that want this as well. That's what they would like if they can't overturn it and stop it altogether. Well, I think one thing we should stop altogether is the House of Lords. The House of Lords are all appointees. They don't represent anybody that themselves. They're trying to stand in the way of the referendum vote. So I think the time has come to actually abolish the House of Lords and replace it with some kind of elected chamber on a PR basis so that it is really representative of the people. And I think they've now... I think the British people have probably lost patience with the House of Lords, the majority of people, and we'd like to see them um, abolished altogether. And if there's any it's meant good... to be sort of a checks and balance second chamber, but many feel increasingly it's becoming its own <clears throat> parliament, which it is distinctly not meant to be. Well, I was there today, actually. I went in to listen to a question put by Lord Pearson, Malcolm Pearson, who's a UKIP peer, and these people there, are for overwhelming majority, do not represent anybody but themselves. They've been appointed... They all belong to a particular class who think that they know better than ordinary people and they are totally out of touch, in my view. If there's good people there, well, let's have an election and those good people can put themselves to the electorate and see if they get elected. And I think first thing you need to do before you reform the House of Lords and have something else is to decide what it's actually there for. Now, it needs to have powers to amend legislation and send that back to the Commons, and whether that uh, applies or not, or whether it can be rejected, is something that has to be worked on. And I think what we need there is more people who actually have to live with this legislation. The ordinary working person, the ordinary person that runs a small business, the unemployed person, let's see them represented there, because they are the people who actually have to live with this legislation and pay for it in their everyday lives. So I would like to see a far more representative body in the second chamber, whatever we want to call it, uh, than what we've got at the moment. Because I've sat there and looked at them, and I think these people don't represent anybody that I know or see meet every day. You know, they've all lived lives of privileges, privilege, most of them, in one way or another. And, of course, one of the points we can make on this is, which was made recently, is these people, a lot of these people that were there, quite a few of them, have had jobs in the EU, EU commissioners or whatever. Now, one of the rules on getting your pension from the EU or any other benefit is you're not supposed to speak against the interests of the European Union. Now, also, you're supposed to declare an interest. And I was talking to Malcolm Pearson about this today, and he said, in actual fact, they've made it so that you don't have to declare it as an interest that you've got an EU pension. You, You know, you can just pass that one over. 
Uh, so you don't have to actually talk about this. But it is written down in the rules of the European Union that if you're getting a benefit, which includes a pension, then you're not supposed to talk against the interests So the Kinnocks and the Mandelsons yeah. of this world yeah. would clearly be in that bracket. And yes. following that theory, they would never say anything negative well, against the EU. If they may well decide out of integrity, because we all know that they're very uh, you know, principled people, that they might say something against the EU, but then they would be putting in jeopardy their pension or some other, whatever benefit they get. Um, and on top of that, some of these people are privy councillors. Now, they swear an oath to the Crown. If you become an EU commissioner, you swear another oath to the EU. That is in itself treasonous. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe in our constitution or not, doesn't matter. That's a fact of the matter. If you are a privy councillor, you swear an oath to the Crown, and if you swear an oath to somebody else, that is treason. Just two more quickies. Who is Elmer Brock? Ah, well, I'm glad you asked me that. He is a a German MEP, uh, well-known in the Parliament, um, very, very keen advocate of complete integration, and, in fact, I believe he came over and spoke to David Cameron... uh, during the referendum or after the referendum, made a special trip to Downing Street. He's a very, very, um, as I said, keen advocate of the European project. And he was uh, in trouble recently. I picked it up on Twitter because he was taken to task for saying that the European Parliament was more powerful than our Parliament. Well, in actual fact, I backed him up because sometimes I find myself agreeing with my opponents and political opposites in the parliament because what they're saying is factually correct the european parliament is more powerful than our parliament we make laws which our parliament has no option but to implement directives must be implemented into uk law Uh, there is some uh, degree of freedom in the the detail in that and regulations which we vote on parliament has no ability to not implement those laws, they automatically apply. So we have transferred, with successive treaties over the years, more and more power to the European Union, and it's quite right to say that it is now more powerful than our parliament. So you're not a fan of Elmer Brock? No, he's... But but actually what he said is true? Yes, it's just plain and simple truth. He's quite right. And in in addition to that, of course, this whole withdrawal agreement that we're, we're having so much discussion about in this country and is going through parliament will have to be voted on in the European Parliament. The European Parliament will make that final decision because when it's been agreed by the Council, it has to go to the European Parliament who will have a simple, do they accept it or not accept it? And it could be voted out, it could be voted down. So we could find ourselves back in the situation we were in on the 24th of June 2016. It's like a game of political snakes and ladders where if the Parliament rejects it, we're back where we were the day after the referendum, and we start again, which, in my view, is, wouldn't be a bad thing, because then the Parliament would actually do what it, our Parliament and government should do, what it should have done from the start, which is should decide how it's going to leave and then tell the European Union how it's going to work, not ask them, because they don't want us to leave. Uh, that's it for <clears> this episode. <throat> Cheers, Gerard. You're welcome, Ian, and thank you very much. And I do hope that the listeners are not too bored by hearing about what goes on in the European Union. Don't worry, we're leaving soon and they won't have to listen to it anymore. And if you (laughs) want to get in touch with Gerard? If you want to know more about what I'm doing, you can go to my website, which is gerardbattenmep.co.uk. Or follow Gerard on Twitter, at gerardbattenmep.co.uk.